Monsignor Sterline and brother priests and revered sisters and all friends in Christ. Do you realize that if you are consistent in this mission, you will be exposed to 12 talks? And I should tell you that they will all be different. I will not be like the professor who traveled around the country in a car and with chauffeur. And the chauffeur always sat in the audience. One day the chauffeur said to him, you know, I think that I have heard that lecture of yours a thousand times. And I could give it just as well as you do. The professor said, all right, you give the lecture tonight. I will dress up in your chauffeur's uniform and sit in the audience. The chauffeur gave a perfect lecture. But at the end, a hand went up. There's a question that I should like to ask you. When you mix that H2SO4 with an NaCl2 and then compare it with the photographic plates of the sun, how do you get the equation E equals M over C squared? He said, that's the most stupid question that I ever heard in my life. And to show you how stupid it is, I'm going to ask my chauffeur to answer it. The subject of this evening's meditation will be choice. I will try to bring home to you the supreme alternatives that are before us. The alternatives of our eternal destiny. And I will begin by giving you two examples of choice. Because after all, our heaven or hell is before us every day. But there come great moments, too, when we make decisions for much of our life. One of these stories will be taken from Paris and the other from London. And both of them were my own experiences. I had gone down from Brussels to Paris to preach a sermon on the second Sunday of February. And I stayed in a small hotel. There was an Englishman playing the piano in an adjoining room and playing it well. I complimented him. And then I asked him if he would like to go out for dinner. He said, I've never talked to a priest before in my life. Well, we're just like anyone else. You stick me with a pin, I will jump too. <laughs> so we sat down at a table in this small restaurant. And he said, do you ever have questions to answer? This is my problem. I have never met in my life one good man or one good woman. 
I thanked him for the compliment. <laughs> and then he went on. He said, now this coming 11th of February, over there at that table, there was a lady trying to break a lump of sugar in a cup of coffee. She couldn't do it, so I went over and broke the lump for her. And she told me how mean her husband was to her. I asked her to come to live with me. <laughs> well, she did, and I get tired of them all after about 12 months. So he said this morning, I bundled up all of her clothes. I left them with the concierge, but she anticipated my move, and she gave me this note. Dear puppy, if you refuse to continue living with me until our anniversary, the 11th of February, I shall commit suicide by throwing myself into the Seine. Now may I permit her to live with me to prevent suicide? I said, no, you may not do evil, that good may come from it. And furthermore, she will not commit suicide. It got to be about 11 o'clock at night. He said, I will walk you back to the hotel. I'm not going to the hotel. I'm going to Montmartre. He said, I was just beginning to think that maybe you were all right. And now you tell me you're going up to that hellhole. Well, I said, there's something else in the hill of Montmartre besides dives. There's a great basilica there, the Basilica of the Sacred Heart. And every night for over 50 years, there are a thousand men in prayer all night long. I induced him to come with me. He said, how long? I said, I will leave when you are ready to leave, though I intend to stay all night. He made no move to go until the sun came up over Paris and I read Mass. Walking down the hill of Montmartre, he said, will you stay in Paris and teach me to be good? It's the first time in my life I've ever contacted goodness. I agreed to meet him that night in his courtyard at 8 o'clock. He came in with a woman, not the one that was involved in the story. And he said, we will go out to dinner, the three of us. And I said, no, this is not a social evening. You must make a choice. Either you are going out with that woman, or you are going out with me. He walked up and down the courtyard a couple of times and came back and said, Well, Father, I think that I'll go out with her. And that's the end of the story. The choice was made after having received a great grace. Please, God, before he dies, he will recall that night at Montmartre. That was the choice for evil. Another kind of choice. I spent about seven or eight years of my life in all in a parish in London in the Soho Square district. I opened the church door this particular morning. It was a cold January morning, heavy London fog.
and her limp figure fell in. A young woman. I said, how did you happen to be here? Where am I, Father? I said, oh, Father? Yeah, she said, I used to be a Catholic, but not anymore. You were drunk. Yeah, she said, I was drunk. Well, I said, men drink because they like the stuff. Women drink because they don't like something else. What were you running away from? She said, three men. I was in love with each of them, and they were beginning to find it out. And so I got drunk. What is your name? And pointing to a billboard opposite the church on the walls of the Cross and Blackwell Jam office, I said, is that your picture over there? Yes, I'm leading lady in that musical comedy. I made a cup of coffee for her, but she was frozen from the night exposure. She said, thanks. I said, no, come back this afternoon and thank me. She said, I will on one condition, that you do not ask me to go to confession. I said, very well, I shall not ask you to go to confession. She said, I want you to promise me faithfully that you will not ask me to go to confession. I said, I promise you faithfully that I will not ask you to go to confession. She came back that afternoon before matinee, and I said, we have two paintings in this church that are very notable. Would you like to see them? As I took her down the side aisle of the church, I pushed her into a confessional. <laughs> I always keep my promises. Two years later, I gave her her veil as a nun in the Convent of Adoration, where she is to this very hour. So that cold January morning, another choice had to be made, and it was a choice for good. And this is the choice that each and, of every, each and every one of us is making. Now let me read you about the two choices. One from the Old Testament, and the other from the New. Incidentally, I will always be reading from the New English Bible. The New English Bible, which is, by all odds, the most beautiful of the texts. God speaks. I offer you the choice of life or death, blessing or curse. Choose life, and then you and your descendants will live. Love the Lord your God, obey him, and hold fast to him. Or else, if you choose evil, you will be cursed. 
Now from the New Testament, from Matthew. It is remotely possible that I have missed my reference, but I know I have it here. I get so nervous when I miss anything. <laughs> Our Lord and Savior is speaking. Enter by the narrow gate. The gate is wide that leads to perdition, and there is plenty of room on the road, and many go that way. But the gate that leads to life is small, and the road is narrow, and those who find it are few. This was much more intelligible in the days when the city was surrounded by walls. There was the great gate that opened up into the highway and the very narrow gate and narrow road that led into separate houses. So our Lord is saying there's a broad road with a wide gate. And many travel that road. There's a narrow road and a narrow gate, and few there are who go in. Now suppose it be said, but I will not make a choice. I will live indifferently. Not to make a choice is to choose. No boy, for example, ever decides in life that he's going to be ignorant. He just doesn't study. No one ever decides that he is going to be a dishonest criminal. He just does not practice honesty. White fences do not remain white fences. They become black fences because we do not paint them and take care of them. Naturalists tell us that the mole, which burrows in the ground, once had eyes to see, but he chose not to use those eyes. And nature, as if seated in judgment, said, take the talent away. There is an animal in the, called the crustacea in one of the caves of Kentucky. The seemingly has perfect eyes. If you cut the eye with a scalpel, you find all of the nerves desiccated. It chose the darkness and the penalty was the loss of vision. So everybody is making a choice, even 
when they do not choose. Now, what are some of these choices? How are they pictured? Well, first of all, I think the choice that is offered us is something like the choice that was offered on the sunlit portico of Pontius Pilate the day that he brought our blessed Lord and Barabbas out before the mob. Now, our blessed Lord had the bloody sweat the night before. He was scourged. He was made king for a day. When I visited Jerusalem, I noticed on the walls of the pre-floor of the Praetorium of Pilate, for example, a big letter B, beta, Greek letter, then the Roman numeral, 12, and then other numbers. These carvings and the great rocks in the Praetorium of Pilate were a game the soldiers played, king for a day. The B meant Basilius in Greek, king. If the dice would fall in that B, he was king for a day. Now, when our blessed Lord was brought down into that praetorium, they mocked him, they put on a crown of thorns, they gave him a reed, they put on a purple robe, and they bowed before him mockingly as their king and their lord. Now, Pilate brings him out on his sunlit portico, and with him, Barabbas, a great popular hero. Let us remember that. He was not just a robber, as has been described. He was rather a revolutionist. And there was reason for revolution in Jerusalem because the Jews were under the servitude of the Romans. He was anti-establishment. He was popular because he was violent. He tried to overthrow the Roman authority. And Pilate now brings out on the court these two figures. There is even some evidence in the early manuscripts of Scripture that the name of Barabbas, but Barabbar, means in Hebrew, son. Rabbas is rabbi. So he was the son of the father. Pilate, therefore, was really saying, which shall I release to you, Jesus, the son of the heavenly father, or the son of the father, Barabbas? They chose Barabbas. Release unto us Barabbas. I shall I do with your Christ? Crucify him. Now, we have that choice. We are in many important moments of our life making that decision. We are opting for the hero, or we are opting for the one who, for the moment, is quite unpopular. Or to put it in other scriptural language. We are going to one of two cities. St. Augustine of the, of the fourth century wrote a book called The City of God. 
in which he contrasted it with the city of evil. Now, in the last book of Scripture, which is the book of Revelation, there are two cities that are described. This is, I think, one of the most apropos books of modern times. It's very, very difficult to understand, and there are many things in it which we'll never understand until it's too late, really. But there are two cities. One is the city of Babylon, and the other is the city of Jerusalem. Not the Babylon, the historical Babylon, but the Babylon that is yet to come, the corrupt city of evil. And this is the way John describes it. Then one of the seven angels that held the seven bowls came and spoke to me and said, Come, and I will show you the judgment on the great horror enthroned above the ocean. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and on the wine of her fornication men all over the world have made themselves drunk. In spirit he carried me away into the wilds, and there I saw a woman mounted on a scarlet beast, which was covered with blasphemous names. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and gold and jewels and pearls. In her hand she held a gold cup, full of obscenities and the foulness of her fornication. And written on her forehead was a name with a secret meaning, Babylon the Great, the mother of horrors and every obscenity on the earth. The woman I saw was drunk with the blood of God's people and with the blood of those who had borne their testimony to Jesus. That is one city. Then the other city, which will be at the end of time. Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? Our blessed Lord. Who is the wife or the bride of the Lamb? The church. All of us who will be members in heaven, one of another. So when spirit he carried me away to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. It had the radiance of some priceless jewel like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great wall with twelve gates at which were twelve angels, and on the gates were inscribed the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. So ultimately, at the end of our choice, after having chosen either Christ or Barabbas, there will be two cities awaiting us. The city of Babylon, and the great marriage, for in heaven there will be the marriage of the Lamb and the Bride, which is the Church. Now let us look at a few characters who have made this choice. St. Augustine. St. Augustine was the hippie of early, the early Church. He was a very learned man dissolute, 
but he still had a yearning to be good. And he often prayed, Dear Lord, I want to be good, but not now. A little later on. We all say that prayer. And one day he was with his friend, Alepius, in a garden. And he was torn on the inside between following the way of the Spirit and following the way of the flesh. And he heard a voice, the voice of a child, saying, Tole, Lege, take up the book and read. And he read from the Epistle of the Romans, not in chamberings and in impurities, but in obedience to the Spirit. And Augustine chose that day to follow Christ and became one of the great saints of the church. Even pagans had this choice. Five or six centuries before Christ was the great teacher of antiquity, Socrates. And he was constantly telling the youth of Athens that there was an absolute in morality and there was one God, not many. And that was a crime against the state. Socrates was condemned to death. And they offered him a chance to escape because of his influence and his prestige and his goodness. And Socrates would not escape. And they gave him the hum-hemlock juice. And he drank it. And as he was losing consciousness, he said, Oh, yes, I owe a rooster to Asclepius. Refusing to escape, he said, I shall follow whatever way God leads me. So even the pagans have the choice. An interesting story from the Old Testament. There was a famine in the city of Bethlehem. And Ruth left the city of Bethlehem, or the, rather the town of Bethlehem, and went into the Moab country. Now that was non-Jewish. And she should not have done it, even during a famine. And she took with her her two sons. They married two Moabite women. The two sons died. Naomi had two daughters-in-law in her hand. One was Ruth, and the other was Orphe. And Naomi said, I'm going back again to my own land. Now choose what you will do. Ruth said, your God shall be my God. Your country shall be my country. Your Lord, my Lord. I shall go with you. Orphe 
went back to her pagan people. Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David, who was the notable king who foretold the kingship of our blessed Lord. So at the beginning, therefore, of this of these series of conferences. Think on the choice that you are making. Never be discouraged. You have plenty of help. We will develop that as time goes on. And perhaps I can describe maybe some of the difficulties that we have and the hopes in terms of some of the great sculpture of Michelangelo. Michelangelo was commissioned to do the tomb of Julius II. This tomb was never finished. What you see in Florence today are four half-formed figures coming out of the marble, struggling, striving to be released. That is a picture of ourselves. We know this choice is before us. We're striving. The flesh weighs upon us. Old habits, weakness of will. But like these characters, we hope for an upsurge from all that is cold and inert. The second statue, the statue of King David. A sculptor in Florence tried to make a statue and he ruined it. But it was a beautiful piece of Carrara marble. One day Michelangelo passed by and saw that marble, asked that it be brought to his studio, applied his genius, his inspiration and his skill and brought out of it the immortal statue of David. And so though our lives have been spoiled, though they may have been hacked and ruined by circumstances or other artists, the great finger and hand of God can mold us into immortality. And finally, the Pietà. Here is a young woman, having seen her divine son crucified, and then taken down and put in her lap as a kind of a drained chalice. And yet she's not broken with grief. There's not sadness. There is peace. There is resignation to God's will an interior calm. For she sees that sacrifice was part of the divine message to her son and to herself. And as we struggle to overcome all of the alien influences that there are in the world, those we will talk about too, as we struggle to overcome them,
We're never to be cast down by trials, by discipline, by mortification. We have God with us. Christ is in our souls. You're good people. You would not be here if you were not good. And even though you're not as good as you would want to be, you've come here because you want to be better. There's a deep yearning today in the American soul for goodness and spirituality. And you manifest it. And if you bear with me during these talks, I will lead you step by step to inner peace, to inner joy and consolation. Thank you, and God love you.